At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our Christmas message series, Eyewitness, finding your Christmas story in theirs, where you're invited to find your story in the extraordinary experiences of the men and women who witnessed the very first Christmas. Together, we'll see that no matter who we are, the coming of the Christ was for us. And so I'm going to start off in Matthew uh, chapter 1. I'm going to start off by reading the verses for us this morning, which you're familiar with. And then we're going to dive into this message as we continue our series on eyewitnesses. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a, a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he was considering these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is indeed from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Now all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call him, or they will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. What a beautiful passage, one that we're familiar with. We love reading these. Don't you just love reading these and being reminded of this beautiful story? Uh, and this year, as we look at the Christmas story, we're taking it from a little bit different angle, and that is those of what we would call eyewitnesses. Now, I was thinking about this as I was preparing for the message. That in our current culture, we have a different idea sometimes of what an eyewitness is. I was reminded uh, a few years ago, it was in the wintertime, in one of those terrible winter snowstorms we get in Michigan, which is partial ice. It's, you know, I don't remember if it was an early in the season or late in the season, but it was one of these storms where it was just cold enough for it to be freezing rain, and it created a sheet of ice, and I believe it was on I-94, and a video circulated, you might remember this, of somebody standing there. I think they were probably going eastbound on 94 or one of the directions, and they were filming the people coming the other direction, and what this was was one of these chain reaction accidents where it was just one after the other after the other, just people plowing in, whether they're trucks or small little cars, one after the other, and you're just watching this person film this or video this as an eyewitness. And I think I actually posted it on social media. I don't know if you get angry on social media, but I was angry. I'm like, why didn't that person get in their car drive up the road and start waving at people, warning them of the danger, but instead they were content and felt called to be an eyewitness and recorded it. And I believe that's something that's very pervasive in our culture today, maybe more than any other time because of social media and technology, is that we view ourselves as eyewitnesses to situations as a passive spectator. And yet, as we read this story, the Christmas story, we realize that that's not at all what it was. When we're talking about Mary and Joseph and shepherds, and even Herod and all these people that were involved that came into the scene and off the scene and came back in. And as we learn and we, we read this incredible story, 
we realize that these people were not passive spectators. And the point of today's message, particularly as we look at the life of Joseph, is that neither are you, and neither am I. That the Christmas story is still being written today. And each of us are eyewitnesses to that beauty and to that miracle. Not as passive spectators, but as active eyewitnesses. And so as we look at the lives of Mary like we did last week, and today Joseph and the shepherds next week and on and on, we're going to see through different lenses and different perspectives, but at the same time realize that we're, ask ourselves, where am I in this story? How do I fit in to this unfolding plan and purpose of God? What is God calling me to do, yes, do, in light of the miracle of Christmas? So we're going to look today and see in the life of Joseph, the husband of Mary, that a life of faith results in a righteous response to God's unfolding plan. I believe the big idea probably behind me is true faith results in a righteous response, and I would just add to that, to God's unfolding plan, because indeed it is an unfolding plan. Now, I was reminded also, when I think about this idea of weaving stories together, we all love a good story, don't you? We love stories. I think of Lord of the Rings and some of these amazing stories that have been written. And we just, we just whether they're on film or whether we get a, a, engulfed in a book, reading a story, we love stories because we love the way a good story develops characters. A good story makes you care about the characters, right? A good story brings you into it. And yet, a good story is also filled with, with surprise endings and plot twists and, you know, climaxes and, and just different, uh, the, the ebb and flow as things go on, you know, all the depths of despair to the hope and all these different things. And yet, the gospel is the greatest story ever told. The birth of Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and his building of his church is the greatest story ever told, full of all kinds of plot twists and unexpected events and, and a weaving of people. I was reminded some of the best that I can think of in my lifetime of weaving stories together, ironically, was that 90s sitcom, Seinfeld, who, which ironically and just geniusly, if that's a word or not, ingenious, but they actually made fun of themselves as it was a show about nothing, which is ironic because it was actually about quite a lot. It was a lot about people and human relationships and how we see, perceive ourselves and others and how we interact. I mean, it was more than a show about nothing. But I was listening to or watching an interview of Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David from about five years ago. When they were thinking back over those, I don't know how many episodes, they said there was one particular episode. It happens to be my favorite one. I was interesting that they came up with this, where everything came together. It was, the, <laughs> it was the episode, perhaps, if you ever watched Seinfeld. Maybe I'm speaking to people who've never watched Seinfeld. If so, go with me on this one, okay? <laughs> but, <laughs> but Seinfeld, this was the one where Kramer was learning to golf. And so as he was learning to golf, he was whacking golf balls out into the Atlantic, right? That's how he was learning to golf. Some seemingly unrelated little subplot happening over here with crazy Kramer and his golf swing. Meanwhile, uh, George Costanza is trying to win the heart of, I believe, Susan at the time, and he was trying to impress her by claiming to be this famous marine biologist. Anybody remember this one? <laughs> and I'm like 20 minutes into the show going, how in the world does any of this have to do with anything? Until the closing scene, if you watch it, you remember, they're sitting in that cafe, and they're talking, and George is recounting the greatest fish tale of all times. It's a great salt of the sea, how he was at the ocean, and this whale 
was struggling, and of course, being the marine biologist that he's supposed to be, he was forced to go in and do something about it. And so he finds himself telling the story of being tossed by the waves, being thrown like a cork up into the back of the mighty beast, and reaching into the blowhole because he could see that there's something stuck, something of obstructing, and he goes, I found what it was, and I pulled it out. It's a golf ball. <laughs> it's a golf ball. Yes. And then the best line of all, after the applause and the laughter dies down, Kramer, with his perfect timing, looks at him and says, is that a Titleist? <laughs> Which, if you're a golfer, you can relate to that. So anyways, all I'm saying is that that reminds me of what this is like, because here's Mary and Joseph and shepherds and this crazy lunatic Herod, who's a genocidal maniac, we'll find out soon, willing to do anything to retain power. God is using all of these people deploying and employing who they are to weave this tapestry of a narrative before us. And so we find Joseph. And what do we learn from Joseph? We find that Joseph is the one chosen to parent Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. We find that Joseph, in Joseph, we find an example of true faith. So let's set the stage and we ask ourselves, well, what does it look like to live in faith. What does that actually mean for us, for you and for me, if we were to be one who lives a life of faith like Joseph? What are the markings? What are the ways we know this? Well, let's first set the stage and see what happens. We find here in verse 18 that his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. You know, that's said so matter-of-factly, isn't it? And yet we learned last week just the incredible miracle of the virgin conception, the fact that God, infinite God, would become man and yet still retain his divinity. We had the divine human person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, something that even though the, the prophets would look forward to, could never truly comprehend as they looked forward or even anticipate. And for us, looking in the rearview mirror, it's even for us, it's outside of our realm of understanding. As one good professor of mine said, it's not irrational, it's super-rational. It's above our ability to reason. It's, it's one of these things as finite creatures that we can't fully and completely grasp, but we trust, and we see it unfolding before us. And so we, here we have Mary chosen to give birth to the promised one, to the Messiah. She was found to be with a child, and yet the problem is, that they have not been together. It says, before they came together, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. But they were betrothed. And we think about the word betrothed. And betrothal for us, we have engagement and we have weddings, right? But for us, the betrothal, the engagement is oftentimes a little less important in the sense. It's not a legal binding arrangement. It's an expectation of that where we would sign our wedding uh, you know, certificate, marriage certificate, excuse me, on the wedding day. Uh, once it's officially done. Well, back in these days, that all took place at the betrothal time. So when Mary and Joseph were betrothed together, that's why later in just a little while, he could be called the husband of Mary because they were both betrothed and yet they were married. They just had not known each other in the intimate manner of, uh, of the sexual reunion that would ultimately uh, be that which would make the marriage official. Also, they had not gone through the celebration. Usually, what took place is there was a year of waiting. And during this year of waiting, a dowry would be paid by the groom's family. The groom would then set himself to getting the house in order, literally oftentimes building a small little simple house. 
we know that Joseph was a carpenter. He was a builder. Can you imagine? He's like, this is my era, man. I'm, you know, I was made for this moment. <laughs> and so they're building the house. Uh, and then that would culminate in that massive wedding celebration that often ended up lasting seven days. Incredible, right? Yeah. So here we have all this, all this is set in motion. They're betrothed. There's emotion, and you're getting on the, on the marriage train, and it ain't stopping, man. We're going for it, right? This is on its way. We have, the train has left the station, Joseph, but yet, unfortunately, or fortunately, because we know the bigger picture, but at the moment, not knowing anything, Joseph learns his wife is with child, and he knows it's not his, and so there's a problem. There's a dilemma. That legal document had already been made. The dowry had been paid. The guests were being invited. The house was being built. And yet, what am I to do? Well, Joseph had two options. It had two options. But we know, before we see the two options, we know this. It said that he, being a just man, being a just man and not willing to put Mary to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. This idea of being a just man is no small business. The word there is the same word for righteousness. He was a righteous man. He was a pious man. He was a man who put his faith in God. He was known to be one who would worship God regularly. He was this kind of a man, a man of faith, a man of substance, a man who knew this truth that Paul would later state in quoting the Old Testament. He says this in Romans 1.17. For in it, the gospel that is, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Or, I love this better translation, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. This was Joseph. Joseph believed God even before the dream. Joseph was a man of faith. Joseph was one we can look to. He could have done two different things. He could have had a public trial where Mary would have been shamed and potentially executed. Now, although we know in those days, a lot of the Old Testament laws under the Roman times were not being followed as they had been, but that was the law, if you go back to Deuteronomy 24, I believe, where it talks about this exact situation and what could take place. He could have publicly shamed her, and in so doing, what he would be doing? Clearing his name, vindicating himself, perhaps even getting some pity and some sympathy and some, some kudos for being such a man of great faith, and yet he chose not to do that. He chose to annul the marriage quietly, which was also something that he could do. Mercifully and quietly, he decided in his heart to put her away, to annul the marriage, to spare her the shame, the humility, or even worse. It's interesting, we talk about Joseph as quiet Joseph. Quiet Joseph. Here we talk about him quietly deciding to put her away quietly without the pomp and circumstance and the fanfare and the justification and the vindication. This is a man, a righteous man, a pious man, a man who understood something about mercy and grace and love and bearing the burdens of someone else. So he didn't pursue the route of vengeance. He didn't pursue the route, of, the route of vindication. Instead, he decisively and mercifully came to his decision. But just, just as he had made that decision, what do we find out? Notice what happens. God intervenes. 
But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph. Now, this would be in a dream. This would be a, in a dream to him as opposed to Mary, which was a vision. But it was nonetheless very real and very profound and even terrifying. But Joseph, at the moment he's made up his mind to do the righteous thing, God intervenes and says this, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Maybe you noticed it last week. If not this week, maybe you'll notice it next week. Time and time again, the very first words that come out of the angelic creatures, beings are, fear not. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. How many times did Jesus have to say that to his disciples? How many times do we have to hear those words, fear not? Fear not. Do not be afraid. Fear is such a powerful, powerful emotion. I, this was not in my notes, but the thought came to my mind. I hope it's appropriate to share. But we all know what happened in Oxford a few weeks ago, the terrible tragedy, and how that, that whole city and the whole region is on edge and grieving and dealing with this incredible tragedy, this is sad, sad reality in which we live. Meanwhile, just a few weeks or so before that in Wisconsin, there was a situation where a car came into a crowd of people on a Christmas parade and another, another senseless awful tragedy and yet so on a one of the nights following the, the shooting in oxford there was actually a vigil in downtown oxford that drew some some are saying over 30 35,000 people perhaps the streets were just packed but what you might not know what happened that night is somebody fainted in the crowd and when they fainted people started calling out for help and right at that moment someone dropped a mic apparently on the stage and made a loud boom and i've seen surveillance video of in a matter of like half a second the crowd turned into a stampede. And thank God nobody was severely injured. People were injured. People were separated. It was like literally 20 seconds of another traumatic event that took place. And as I watched that, I said, I believe something's happening to our minds. I believe as we go through what we're going through right now, we're becoming more and more overrun with fear. And we're seeing that I don't know if that would have happened five years ago to that crowd. But I believe this is culmination, this confluence of terrorizing events in our lives is causing us to be fearful. And the message of Christmas is fear not. That's right, you're right. But fear not. Fear not. What might have he been afraid of? Well, we can think of many things. Perhaps, and for, maybe foremost, he might have been afraid of doing the wrong thing before God. And God's like, Joseph, it's okay. You don't put her away. I want you to marry her because she has not been unfaithful. She is pure. She is clean. She is yours. This child is from the Holy Spirit of on high. A miracle has occurred. It's okay. But do the right thing and take her as your bride. He might have been fearful of his reputation. He might have been fearful of what would be said about him because, again, by putting her away, whether quietly or publicly, he could vindicate himself and say, hey, I'm a victim here. But now, taking her as his wife. Imagine the story. Yeah, this is a, a miracle from the Holy Spirit. This is the Messiah. Right. Tell me another one, Mary. <laughs> okay, Joseph. Gotcha, buddy. 
You know what I'm saying? I mean, this was really real for him. So he knew that by doing what the angel was commanding him to do, he was risking his entire reputation. He would bear the shame that she would have bared. Does that sound like anybody you know? An apple doesn't fall far from the tree, even if <laughs> that apple's grafted in. You go, go with, go with that. You know what I'm saying? Okay. <laughs> But I know he learned a lot from Joseph, right? We'll read that in a minute. But, but imagine in that moment, in that decision, as a righteous man, a man of faith, he said, I'm willing to risk my reputation. I'm going to take the hard road. I don't care what people think. God is still looking. As this Christmas story continues to unfold and the plan of God comes clearer and more clear and into focus as we culminate in the end times, in that great wedding feast, he's still looking for people who will fear not, being misunderstood, being falsely accused, being shamed or ostracized, being thought a wacko or a religious zealot or brainwashed or in some sort of a cult. Anybody? Yes. You know what I'm talking about. The angel's message to, to Joseph and to each of us is fear not. Fear not. Because there is truth. And Jesus truly is the son of God. The gospel is true. And you and I are part of this story. Not as passive eyewitnesses, but as active participants. And we must fear not. You know, perhaps he was fearful of the loss of control. Anybody here like to be in control? I hate not driving. I mean, my wife's a great driver, but I, do a, I don't do really well in the passenger seat. Can I get an amen to anyone? I, I mean, I'm doing this, and she's a great driver. She's much less aggressive than me, but I like to have the wheel, right? I like to have the wheel. We all want to have the wheel. I think of Joseph as a builder. We know he's a carpenter. Carpenters love blueprints, right? Carpenters don't like to just wing it. That's why I'm a really bad builder, okay? I, need a, <laughs> I built a house for someone recently, and I needed somebody who was more wired like a builder. I'm more like an artist builder, you know? Like, oh. And literally, I drove my cousin Frank, who was my framer, crazy. Frank, I love you if you're watching this. But Frank is a builder at heart, man, and he literally will take a blueprint and spread them out over the two-by-fours and put a brick here and a brick there, and he will study it down to the quarter inch. And so when we were building my house that we moved, that some of you have seen, and we put this big addition onto it, there was literally, literally I can show you, like, scratches and drawings on napkins. I don't know what the township was doing when they accepted this as the plans, but they did. But at one point, I came to Frank. I said, Frank, see how these roof lines tie together? I want to have, like, an upper patio with this tip out. He goes, Rick, it can't happen. It can't work. I said, no, Frank, it can. I know it can. He goes, Rick, it can't. There are no blueprints. We can't do this, Rick. And I said, give me a couple hours. So I went and grabbed some shoe boxes and literally made a little 3D makeup. And I went and walked up and said, here you go, Frank. <laughs> Let's just do that. And we did it. And we built it. Joseph is a carpenter. Joseph's like blueprints. He doesn't like changing plans, right? He doesn't like someone winging it. And here God comes in and changes his plans that he'd made for his wife, for his family, for the celebration, for his career, and even more so. Let me just say this. There's a reason why Matthew spent the first 16 or 17 verses recounting the genealogy from David to Joseph. There's a reason for that. 
There's a reason why Luke does the same thing with Mary. It seems odd. Who would start a story with a whole chapter? You're going to lose the audience in the first 17 verses. They're never going to make it, right? But there's a reason. The reason is this, is that these people were clinging to a promise that was made to King David over seven centuries before them. Seven centuries. I was telling Lon, I did the math wrong earlier, but I was like, think back to, no, not 1400, 1321 AD. Someone made a promise, and we're still holding on to that. Anybody? 1321 AD. That's 700 years ago. These people were clinging, clinging to the promise that Nathan said to David. He said, through you, the kingdom will be forever. Through your righteous seed, through your offspring, I will raise one up, and my kingdom will be there forever and ever and ever. And so, over these 700 years, with every generation, the descendants of David would be cataloged and, and written down, and these branches began to branch out, and over here, on the, oh, here's the clan that's by Bethlehem. Oh, here's another one over by Nazareth. Oh, here's this other clan. Maybe this is the year. Maybe this is the one, this baby who's being born. No. Well, maybe it's their son. Maybe it's going to be their son or that nephew. You understand what was going on? With every single generation, there was an expectation that perhaps this was the one. And don't you think that Joseph was aware of that? That he was royalty, that there was a chance that perhaps the son of God, or no, the Messiah, not the son of God, but the Messiah, the Savior of the people of God would come through his line. And yet, in this moment, before he makes the decision, he's kissing it all goodbye. And yet God says, no. It's exactly, Joseph, what's going on. This promised one is going to be your child. Not through natural conception or miracle, but because I have called you to be his father. You and I are called to trust the plan of God. And what that means, ultimately, is that we let go of our plans. We cling to the promises of God. Joseph laid down his dreams. Joseph laid down his rights. Joseph laid down his reputation. He believed that God had a plan. He believed that he had a role to play in that plan. And he believed that it wasn't about him. That's what it means to live by faith. That God has a plan. That each of us have been called to play a role in that unfolding plan. And yet, it's not about us. The story remains the same. Joseph, perhaps more than any other biblical character, probably models what this means. The quiet Joseph, the man of great faith, the righteous one. You know, I was thinking about this um, probably December 1985. I was uh, a sophomore at Cedarville College. I had gone to Cedarville to be an engineer. I was in pre-engineering, although I didn't really know what I was doing. And once the, once the letters outnumbered the numbers, I knew I wasn't going to be an engineer. <laughs> I just knew that, so I was undeclared. I, I spent some time. I went to Africa on a missions trip. I went to, I went to uh, um, Fort Lauderdale Beach during, <laughs> during 
um, spring break and witness the people on the beach, you know. And I, I got involved in a youth home for wayward teens who were really struggling, came from broken homes. And God used all these things. And I remember December 1985, I'm driving home to Virginia from Ohio, and I'm going through the mountains of western Pennsylvania near Cumberland. And I'm listening to the radio, and there's a radio broadcast, maybe Youth for Christ or something. I got the old transistor radio, and as I'm going over the, the mountains, I can get it. And as I go to the valleys, I'm losing it. But I'll never forget that message, because that message was a Christmas message on Joseph. And it was a critical time in my life when I was trying to decide, what am I going to do with my life? And God used that message to convince me that God had a plan that I had a role to play in that plan. But it wasn't about me. He's called us to trust his plan, means laying down our plans, and being like quiet Joseph, do what? Obey the word of God. When Joseph awoke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name. Jesus. So interesting. There's three things. There's three ways in which it says that he obeyed the word of God, the word of the angel. What did he do? He, he took her to be his wife. He did not know her. And he named Jesus like he had been instructed to do. Jesus. Savior. Rescuer. These are just three small acts that are if you'll forgive the pun, pregnant with meaning. He took her to be his wife, meaning, as I said earlier, he was letting go of his dreams. He was letting go of the reputation. He was letting go of all of the celebration. He was letting go of what his family might think of him and her. He was letting all that go in order to trust God. I'll say this too. I don't know if we'll say it next week, but do yourself, do, just do your own yourself. I recently I've been studying and I, I was I forget the guy's name, Justin Robbins or something, but he was talking about things you didn't know about Joseph, and I was watching this, this little podcast, and he talked about this vision we have of Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem, going from room to room, and didn't anybody remember the flannel graph? Okay, maybe Veggie Tales. anybody? Okay, okay. all right, so, <laughs> Bob the Tomato, whatever. Anyway, so, so Jesus, you know, we have this image of our mind of him going knocking, sorry, no room, knocking. Sorry, no room. You know, this whole thing. And I remember the flannel graph moving in procession. I was probably the little kid up there moving it, right, for the teacher. But that's not really told, told to us in the Bible. In fact, the word there for no room in the inn very well could simply mean there was no spare bedroom. Remember, Joseph was returning from Nazareth to his hometown. That's why they were going there. He had family. He had extended family. And he had a pregnant wife who everybody could see was about to burst and none of them could find a spare bedroom. I wonder what was really going on there. Joseph was willing to bear the shame, to let go of his dreams, to embrace the plan of God, even though it was not his own, to lay down his plans and say, not my plan, not my will, but thy will be done. As Jesus would say, literally, the eve of his death. Joseph obeyed. He took her as his wife. 
but he knew her not. He didn't exercise his rights even now as a married man. He showed self-control. He understood that any action of that nature would cause some to doubt, would give reason for those to say, oh, this whole idea of the Holy Spirit is nonsense. We know what was going on. He said, no, I'm willing to let go of my rights, my reputation. I'm willing to bear that, to obey the word of God. And lastly, I'm willing to take on the most arduous task <laughs> that could ever be asked of a man. To raise the Son of God. <laughs> Imagine. You're going to raise the Messiah. No, I'm not. <laughs> we don't hear that from him, do we? Simple, quiet obedience. He was willing to trust the plan, to embrace his role, and yet to realize that it was not about him. We don't know a lot about Joseph. He quietly exits off the scene. We, we do know one thing about him. We never, never hear him talk. Another reason why he's referred to as quiet Joseph. But his actions speak so loudly. They resound through the centuries to us today. He quietly exits the scene. But notice in Luke 2, 39 through 41, just one little snippet that gives us just a little bit of a picture of the impact that he left on Jesus. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child, that is Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. We see small little snippets and hints to the consistent faith lived out before his son that no doubt was a part of this wisdom that we read was being imparted to Jesus. Joseph quietly fulfilled his role without telling us a word. No Instagram story, <laughs> no blog, 10 lessons I learned in parenting the Messiah <laughs> and how that can impact your life. That's a good one. I got the, has anybody written that one yet? <laughs> but think about that. Isn't that true? It's not about him, and it's not about you, and it's not about me, but it is about us. Because we are the reason he came. We are his church. We are his bride. We are the one that Jesus, at the wedding of Cana, when Mary, his mother, was panicking because there was no wine, he was the one that remembered that, Mary, you gave up the wedding for me. Don't lose sight of the plot, Mary. He was the one that probably had his mind drifting to his wedding that would require his death. Jesus. Jesus was the one that remembered all these things. And yet Mary and Joseph and others in his life played this role, lived out their faith. And yet these people came and they went. They played their roles. Joseph is a wonderful example of that. So what about us? Where does this leave us? Let me just say this. Or let me just ask you, do you believe that God has a plan? That's the starting point. And we live in an age that not only believes there is no plan, there is no God to create a plan 
And so as a result, it's all chaos and randomness. And we cannot make sense of it. We just hang on and do our best. The angel says, fear not, because there is a God. And he has a plan. And I haven't said this so far, but Emmanuel, he is with you. He didn't stay distant and just pay the debt. He came and lived among us. He, he understood our weaknesses. He understood what we go through. He was tempted in all points as we are tempted. He lived a sinless life. He suffered physically. He suffered mentally. He suffered spiritually. He bled or he sweated blood. <laughs> he knows pain and suffering like none of us will ever experience. And he did it for us. And he's called us to be his bride. And he's given us promises. And here's what he told us. He said, he looked at Peter and said, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Are you clinging to that promise? It's 2,000 years old. Are you still clinging to it? I hope so. Do you believe God cares about the church of Detroit? Do you think God, do you believe God has a plan for Detroit? Do you think God has a plan for the people who follow him and love him in Detroit? Do you think God knows better than we know how that's all going to come about? Are we willing to step into the uncertainty and say, I will trust you with your unfolding plan for me today. I will trust you for tomorrow. Whether it's our campus, whether it's our church, whether it's the city, our country, or the entire world, God has a plan. And he's called you and I to be a part of that plan. We are his human agents. And so we step into that role. We take a, get, a bag to a stranger on a corner or maybe a, a student down the hall. This week, you are going to live out the Christmas story as God has called you to do. You are going to be used by God like he did with those Thanksgiving boxes to touch lives for eternity. Your actions today and tomorrow and Tuesday are going to affect the eternity of people. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? Then that should change everything, shouldn't it? Do you want to live a life of faith like Joseph? I know I do. I need to lay down my plans, trust his plan, accept my role, and in so doing, understand it's not about me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of a man named Joseph who is so much like us in so many ways. Father, I thank you for the timelessness of your word. I thank you for your promises, whether they're 700 years ago or 1,700 years ago or 2,700 years ago. You are the God who is on your throne. Your word has not failed. And we are seeing the fulfillment of your promises each and every day. God, I thank you for the way you weave our lives together into a story of Christmas. That each of us has a, has a role to play in your kingdom. And I pray, God, that we will move into that role with humility and faith and a willingness to let go control. Because we love you, because you loved us first, and we can trust you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself today.